Mind Grind Little Show with me, Scott Dobson, and him, Tim Pan. Today we're joined by Lucas Edelon to discuss the essence of the political. So, Lucas, um, you are the founder of Metanascence. Um, could you give us a little bit of a background um, to what that is and what you've been up to before we look at your uh, article on that? Yes, yeah, so I founded Metanascence, I believe, uh, earlier this year. I believe it was in spring. And um, just a little background about myself. Um, I've been into writing, podcasting for a while now. I got my start um, back in 2015 when I helped co-found uh, a now defunct uh, revolutionary conservative webzine known as the Warden Post with uh, a Serbian gentleman known as Graf von Marstall, which was somewhat popular in writer circles, but due to some internal political conflicts, that web scene just kind of became defunct. And um, I felt like there needed to be a space, you know, for people on the right where, you know, maybe they didn't fit into all of these you know, neat little categories, you know, ever since, um, you know, the old alt-right kind of imploded back in 2017, I knew that I could kind of tell that something wasn't working, you know, like I, I wanted Metanascence to be a, a, an outlet for people who, you know, maybe didn't fall into like these, um, you know, like the traditional kind of right or trad, um, you know, ways of thinking or, you know, like Metanascence was meant to be like the other right, you know, like people who didn't necessarily kind of fit the, the whole maybe trad Christian or eco-fash kind of, you know, milieu. And I, I had gotten that idea because I had been introduced through a variety of mutuals to ideas such as metamodernism, uh, integral theory, hedonics, you know, certain futurist uh, ways of thinking. And I felt, to, you know, I thought to myself, well, why are these ideas being discussed, right? Because there was so much overlap. It was weird. Like if you had asked me back in 2015, if, you know, like, radical traditionalists and, and people who call themselves like, you know, integralists who were reading Ken Wilber were going to be, you know, commenting and, and sharing the same things. I wouldn't have believed you, but you know, like here we are. And I wanted to give, um, these writers, these influencers, a space where they could express themselves as well as uh, a place where I could just kind of write, you know, free from censorship. Um, but yeah, Metanascence is basically a project where uh, it's meant to be the flagship for a movement known as the Meta Right, which again is kind of like this emerging. Uh, uh, a faction within the right that doesn't quite neatly fall into the kind of, you know, uh, rad trad or maybe, you know, more radical factions of the right. Uh, it, it's really just meant to be like 
this um, this thought experiment, really. You know, metamodernism is essentially uh, an emerging, not so much a philosophy as it is an epistemological toolbox, right? It's trying to unite basically contradictory ideas. So, you know, the meta right is made up of people who are fundamentally on the right. You know, people who believe in hierarchy, people who believe in natural human equality, people who believe fundamentally in a sense of the sacred, the transcendent, and the immaterial, but who are also not opposed to take ideas from uh, places that may not be um, like familiar with, uh, or rather, you know, they're not afraid to take ideas from people who might be reviled by other people on the right. You know, there is, you, you know, it's like seeing, um, like, maybe we need to revisit, you know, the postmodernists or the post-structuralists. Maybe we need to kind of, like, see what um, these eco-socialist guys are reading, right? But from the perspective of the right. You know, I remember this was ages ago, back when Jonathan Bowden was still alive, bless his soul, where he said that the right needed its own form of deconstruction. And that was back in like, goodness, that was back in like maybe 2013, if not earlier. And I, that still stuck with me, you know, like the fact of the matter is like, we are living in modernity. We're not products of tradition as much as we may want that to be so. Like we are essentially men of late post-modernity trying to figure out where we are in this particular um, junction of history, of time. Didn't, um, just to interrupt, didn't, didn't uh, Jonathan Bowden uh, advocate taking Heidegger particularly seriously? Yes, and you know what? There has been this resurgence of Heidegger, especially in maybe not just in the right, but also you know, in meta-right adjacent circles. I remember... For instance, you know, like this kind of metamodern rad trad overlap, right? My mutual colleague and friend, Justin Carmine, is himself an amateur Heideggerian. Or rather, I should say that doesn't know justice because the guy is obsessed with Heidegger. And he recently published a book through Manticore Press, which if you, if you know, Manticore is one of the big, like, uh, radical traditionalist publishing houses. They were um, responsible for the Aristocratia series of which... I have also been a contributor for. And if you had told me again, like that Manticore would be publishing books on metamodernism, again, from a right-wing perspective, I wouldn't have believed you because the idea would have struck anyone as so outlandish or unheard of. But again, it's like we're, we're approaching a certain time where, you know, just being mere reactionaries isn't working. And I think it's becoming more common for people on the right who don't neatly fit into the traditional, maybe rightist categories of like maybe your your trad cats or your ortho bros, which I mean, I am orthodox myself, but you know, I, I've kind of played footsie with these ideas of uh, you know futurism or accelerationism or what have you, because they're fundamentally interesting, you know, and like it's like how long can we just be mere observers and you know fist waggers at everything the left does instead of maybe taking control of the narrative ourselves or being you know a part of the narrative right 
What, what it's do like you... when Bowden said, oh, I'm sorry. No, go on, keep going. Right. So, you know, when Bowden said the right needed its form, uh, its own form of deconstruction, you know, to me, that's kind of what I wanted Metanaissance uh, to be, you know, a kind of culture, uh, like a kind of cultural critique, but from the right that kind of goes beyond, you know, these maybe vulgar reactionary sort of tendencies that isn't afraid of new so, ideas. So that's, that's where I was going to go. So um, with sort of taking the postmodernist seriously, what would you say is sort of like the essential insight, if there is one, um, of the, the right can take from the postmodernists? Um, is it merely like a, a genealogical one that we have we have gone through modernity and we've now in post-modernity and so we have to deal with people where they are on more of a pragmatic level or is there some sort of, uh, for want of a better phrase, ideological insight from the postmodernists? Yes, I would so, say it's both. See, here's the thing is the downfall of the, well, what's, you're right when we get to, you're right when you describe the whole, you know, the genealogy of modernity. I mean, I, I've, I'm authoring a, uh, a forthcoming article where I make the case, as I have in the past, that we can't undo the crisis of modernity. Like we can't put, you know, uh, Cromwell and Westphalia back in the box, right? We can't go, we essentially can't go back. You know, we are living in a, a situation where the, the consequences of the Reformation or the Enlightenment or the French Revolution, take your starting point, are essentially baked into the cake. But here's the thing, what the postmodernists got wrong was they took their, their um, culture of critique a little bit too far. You know, postmodernism is a lot like liberalism, right? It can only critique things. And Schmidt, who we'll get to momentarily, made this claim. Schmidt was a critique of liberalism, uh, maybe even the arch nemesis of liberalism. And liberalism, right, as he put forward, is not a political ideology in and of itself, in the same way that I would argue that postmodernism is not a coherent philosophy. It's only a critique of philosophy in the same way that liberalism is a critique of politics, right? As you know, that classical liberalism is essentially a movement that arose to kind of get government out of the lives of private individuals. And postmodernism functions in the a very same way. Now, what we, you know, for a kind of post-postmodern future on the right, I believe we need a kind of reinjection of values, a, not just a cr mere critique, although I do think a critique is important because how else are we going to kind of like, you know, like whether it's owning the libs or actually, you know, breaking down these kinds of nonsensical and, you know, just anti-life narratives that they put forward. We need a reinjection of values into our own, you know, methodologies, right? We need to return to things like truth and depth and authenticity and historicity, you know, at this moment in time, right? Like we're living in a very bizarre period, you know, um, like late post-modernity is this situation where it's like, 
I describe it as being at like a um, the entrance of like a door, right? It's like think of yourself in like a vast like checkerboard plane almost, right? Outside of like space or time, but you you're you're confronted with like a door, right? You don't know what's on the opposite side of this door, even though like everything else is just kind of open to you, right? You know, like our situation now, like for the meta right, you know. For metamodernists on the right, you know, our situation is kind of like being outside of time. It's like a kind of afterworldliness. It's not merely just trying to go back to a idealized version of the past, you know, as much as we may want to go back to this golden age of like warrior aristocracies and god kings and priesthoods, as many traditionalists um, envision, as myself did, you know, back in my 20s, you know, I was an arch anti-modernist and traditionalist throughout the majority of my 20s. But I had to make peace with the modern world and accept that that, you know, you know, that vision of the world just is not returning, at least in this cycle. And moreover, I feel like for metamodernists on the right, our, our situation is more of like, not so much as going back to an imagined past, but recovering a kind of lost future right a future or futures that were denied to us by the advent of liberalism of globalism of all of these things that have kind of of the world wars these things that have kind of put the west in peril and have denied um you know us you know western peoples from experiencing these futures that would have been far better had we not gone through these crises. And it's like, again, going to this analogy of the open door in this liminal space, right? It's like everything is around us, right? You know, the past is behind us, but all of these possibilities are before us and beyond us, right? And it's our job to kind of take like the, the um, how do I put this? You know, what we have, like the aesthetics, the meta aesthetics, if you will, of all of these imagined lost futures and kind of use them as tools to kind of, to kind of construct something that's inspiring going forward as we transition from late post-modernity into something else. And I believe that time is coming very quickly probably by the beginning of the next decade. Interesting. That might be a topic for a slightly another time. Yes. But, but what I was wondering here is where does, where does Carl Schmitt fit into uh, this and his, particularly his concept of the political, right. which um, inspired so, your, your article. So where, do, how does Schmitt? Um, so, right. So um, back when I was making, when I was um, kind of getting away from maybe traditionalist conservatism or mere religious conservatism or let's just call it like, you know, tradism, you know, the kind of vulgar traditionalist traditionalism that you see that's kind of like, you know, it, it, it it's kind of propped up by a kind of romantic aesthetic but lacks a lot of substance in its own right. When I was kind of getting away from that, I, I, uh, I had the idea that, well, maybe, 
the way forward is a reevaluation of politics or the political. And that got me into people, uh, rather, that got me into reading the works of Carl Schmitt. It got me rereading the works of Alexander Dugan again because, um, and I'll get to Dugan in a minute, but it, that, that ties into his idea of the multipolarization of the world, right? And if we really are thinking about the polarization, like, or rather the, the repolitization of the world, right, it's impossible to not mention Carl Schmitt as well, precisely because the political life of the world is fundamentally a world defined by states, of which, you know, the state in the thinking of Carl Schmitt is the only true political subject, right? And if we're heading towards a multipolar world, that multipolar world is going to be defined by the, um, by the presence of states, each pursuing its own interests, right? So the reason I got into Carl Schmitt the way I did, or rather, you know, a kind of, how do I put this? You know, uh, uh, the reason I, I immersed myself in his work is because I was trying to search for something like a, a real, like a real understanding of politics, of the nature of politics, because everyone I was associating with at the time, and especially people within metamodernist circles, always eschewed politics for society. And those are two different terms. And I want to touch on that. Right. So Carl Schmitt defines the, well, here, let me read um, the first line of my uh, essay, The Essence of the Political, which I have published at Metanaissance, which was meant to be an a, a brief introduction to the political and legal thinking of Carl Schmitt, as well as a kind of critique of politics, you know, or rather a, a response to maybe anarchists or libertarians or utopians or liberals or socialists who kind of wanted to kind of get away from the problem of politics in favor of a kind of ideology or economics or dogmatism, right? So the first line of my article, which becomes the, um, I think, the, the rubric for the, for the rest of the essay itself goes, the essence of the political is the ability to make a distinction between friend and enemy as applied to activity in relationship to power. Power is a relation of control between two similar organisms, and the sole function of human society is the production and reproduction of power. I believe those two sentences adequately sums up the entirety of Carl Schmitt's thinking. Now, could you, uh, sorry, could you just elaborate on uh, the latter and the production and reproduction of power because power is almost like freedom yes. in its lack of definition so, yes. in most cases. I, I write a little further down that power is, power is essentially a unit of control between two organisms, right? Power is the ability to compel someone to do your will against theirs. And that is especially true in the um, relationship between states, right? Um, you know, like, I mean, think about how America, uh, you know, operates on the global stage. Do you think like these minor states like 
don't know, um, Belgium or the Netherlands or whatever, like are friends with the U.S. because they necessarily want to be. Maybe it's beneficial to them economically to participate in the same marketplace. But essentially, you know, they have to kind of acquiesce to the reality of of American power, right? You know, power is essentially about leadership or leader and led, right? Who is leader and who is led? So, so just to clarify, you mean primarily American military power right. in this context. Right. I'm guessing that's what you're talking about. Right. And here I have a I, – I wrote something a little further down that explains this. Um, because I tried to make this essay as comprehensive as possible because, like, I going back to what I had said um, – you know, the people I were hanging, I was associating with never really wanted to bring up the real possibility of violence. To them, it was like, well, you know, politics is about like, I don't know, political parties and cooperations and galas or whatever. And it's like, that's not what politics is about, right? It's like, it, it's getting to something deeper, Right. Politics is activity in relationship to power. It's not just, you know, it's not essay writing or, you know, just mere competition. It's always about who holds a monopoly on the ability to create a political decision, which is the decision to decide who is friend and who is enemy. And, you know, reading Schmidt, right, and that was, you know, that's basically the, Schmidt's argument as well. And no one. So, 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 just to clarify then this point: who is who? What constitutes the enemy, and what constitutes the friend? I mean, it varies, right? Schmidt himself, right? It, it, sorry, in its most abstract sense, what does it mean to be An the enemy? enemy? What does oh, it mean to be the friend? Right. No. So, you know, let's take this um, as our starting point. Alliance doesn't mean love any more than war means hate. Again, it's all about power. A true enemy is um, any political unit or organism that poses a real uh, threat to that organism or political unit's existence or power. Right. So let me read this. Uh, let me read this excerpt from my article, which I feel uh, demonst- uh, explains this. Right. So Schmidt writes in his uh, concept of the political, quote, an enemy only exists when, at least potentially, one fighting collectivity of people confronts a similar collectivity, unquote. So again, if we're going to use like, I guess, classical etymology, right? The enemy is not, is hostis, not emicus, polineos, not ekthros, right? An enemy is always a public enemy, never a private uh, private enemy. He is not a neighbor where personal grievances, antagonisms, and conflicts are concerned. The true enemy is an existential enemy. He is a figure whose existence alone disrupts the status quo of the state. The true enemy can only be a figure where there exists a real possibility of violence. And that is from my own article where I elaborate on Schmidt's conception of the true enemy.
So, um, if the right were to take Schmidt seriously, how would they change their either uh, prescription of what ought to exist or how to achieve what ought to exist? How would that change in light of Schmidt relative to the people you were dealing with, say, 10 years ago? Oh, goodness. Wow. Um, I wonder if I can say that. <laughs> well, okay. If, if, if you're not, if you're not, if you don't have a clear one, but just what insights, what, how might it change an orientation? How might it change the nature of the goal? Um, so, for instance, I know a lot of sort of like uh, you could refer sure, to uh, sure. po- po- post-libertarians, for instance, would ref- say, well, no, the, the, the goal of of being a political enemy is to seize power. You can't negate power. Now, I don't know. I'm thinking in particular here of um, Pete Canones, if you've never come across him before. He used to have Free Man, Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, which is now mm-hmm. called Pete Canones Show. Um, so I'm wondering if, if that's kind of what you're thinking I mean, or you're thinking something different. Or no, I mean, it is to seize power, but how that happens, you know, like that, that just presupposes a, a lot of hypotheticals, right? It could be, I mean, it could be through, you know, revolutions. It could be through breakaway states, right? I mean, think about it. Like we have a, we have real life examples of this. Uh, for instance, right in Lebanon, we have a situation where Hezbollah essentially makes up the legitimate, maybe not legal, but the legitimate government of much of the south of the country, you know, collecting taxes and performing public works and defending its borders because the, um, I guess you could say the, the de jure Lebanese state has become so weak in that regard that it's opened up a vacuum for other uh, factions and political entities to become the decisive decision-making body, right? And here is what Schmidt defines as a state, right? So, okay, let's let's talk about what constitutes a state. Because I know libertarians, like, again, this article was written to confront, like, libertarians or post-libertarians or anarchists or liberals who thought the state was some kind of boogeyman that we need to get away from. And it's like, no, no, no. Like the state is the sole political subject and we have to make peace with that, right? The political entity, as as Schmidt says, is by its nature, the decisive entity, right? And whoever, so the state is any political unit that is able to decide upon the state of the exception. Now, what is the state of the exception? The state of the exception is a concept which Schmidt wrote about in his book, his other book, um, Political Theology, and it was expanded upon in another book by an um, Italian legal theorist by the name of Giorgio Agamben, who wrote extensively about that in his book of the same name, The State of the Exception. So basically, right, in any situation, you have states are basically made up or rather, let me let me put it like this: the law, what we de- what we define as the law, is always downstream from politics. But politics is is always politics always precedes law. It's never the other way around. And that's something I saw a lot of my libertarian mutuals were making. They thought, well, natural law is something primordial, so therefore law must be 
um, this thing that like presupposes politics, but that's not the case. Politics always presupposes the real possibility of violence, right? It's an existential thing. It, it's, it itself is primordial. And I believe the first line in the, in the concept of, of the political is that the concept of the state presupposes the concept of the political, which is to say the state presupposes the idea that the friend-enemy extinction distinction exists, right? So the state is that monopoly decided entity which has the ability to go beyond the law, to go beyond what is codified in law and able to make that distinction between friend and enemy. It's able to assume for itself extra uh, judiciary powers, right? Anything else that is kind of bound to this judiciary uh, norm, if you want to call it that, is either a part of the state or is, subs or is subsumed within the state. And um, I, I wanted to kind of make that clear to my libertarian and do you, anarchist colleagues. Do you think that Schmidt claims that the state always exists? There's always a situation yes, of state. I would make situation. That I would make that claim. Okay, because the reason I say that is I Schmidt, I think, doesn't believe that on my reading of the concept of political. He actually recognizes that there would be situations of um the the, the situation he mentions there in particular is there is a group which is powerful enough to prevent war taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, but doesn't have the will to make the political decision itself. And therefore, although he doesn't dwell on this in any great length, mm -hmm. effectively, that'd be a situation of, of a situation without a decisive political entity. To just elaborate on that, if you respond, it seems to me that Schmidt's concept of uh, the state really applies to modern nation states after Westphalia with conscription. You are, um, oh, my, my bad. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, so just, just because he, he's very clear on you have to get, you have to force your population to fight and die, which historically isn't always the case. I mean, um, it is disputed, but say in sort of pre-Norman England, uh, there was no obligation on the Thanes to fight for the king, for instance, or at least that's my understanding. Sorry, sorry, no, the Thanes may have done, but the, the men who were under them did, didn't have any obligation to do so. Mm -hmm. Or at least it's potential that it did. So um, I think Schmidt seems very much located historically in, I say, unsurprisingly, the early 20th century. Um, and um, I, the concept of the monopoly... I, I, I think is, unless you want to claim, for instance, that, which you might, say something like medieval Europe or Norman England, well, pre-Norman England, was essentially a situation of lots of microstates. Mm -hmm. If so, fine. I mean, that, that's a perfectly reasonable position to hold. Um, but I don't think that fulfills, I, I, it doesn't seem to have that sort of strong notion of monopoly that Schmidt seems to endow the state with. Okay. Um, first of all, I would agree with you that you know, what, what Schmidt is focusing on is the kind of post-Westphalian modern, early modern nation state. I, I would agree with you there. That is his subject of study. But, um, and again, this is 
more of myself injecting my own thinking onto Schmidt. It's like, yes, I mean, like, here's the thing is if politics is a primordial concept, if politics is activity in relationship to power, which has always existed in human affairs, right? And the ability to distinguish between friend and enemy has always existed within human affairs. There had to have been states, regardless of whether they fit this kind of early modern post-Westphalian bureaucrat, you know, bureaucratic model or not. And I would make the argument, yeah, yes, like, you know, like in Europe, there were, you know, there was an entity that did concept or that did, um, let me, let me phrase this correctly. In, in medieval Europe, there was an entity that you could say was the decisive decision-making entity, right? And that was the Holy Roman Empire, right? And what did we see during the investiture controversy, I believe it was, right? It was this jockeying for power between the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy over who could be the sole decision-making body of Western medieval Christendom, right? So it was essentially a battle between who hold, held the monopoly between, you know, the emperor and the pope. I mean, maybe we don't feel comfortable. I'm sure libertarians do not feel comfortable about assigning, like, the role of the state to these kinds of transnational bodies made up of various free cities and micronations and fiefdoms and principalities. But again, you know, like going by Schmidt's definition, the state is simply, you know, that, you know, entity, that political entity that holds the decision making uh, monopoly. And I believe we can put out, um, Examples such as the Holy Roman Empire and all these different kingdoms at some point in their history. Because even the feudal system, I mean, the feudal system was a, um, what was it? The feudal system was a, a, uh, a, a, a form of, I don't want to say a form of government, but it was a political system based off of you know, you know, liege lords, right? You know, you swore fealty to, you know, your liege lord, and that liege lord swore fealty, at least in theory, to someone who was higher up on the hierarchy of medieval Europe than him. And eventually, you had the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. That's true in many. That's true in many cases. Although I am I'm aware of situations yeah. in which that you, you, they were not transitive, mm-hmm. uh, and if you declared allegiance to a certain law that wouldn't imply you 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 uh right. um to others uh, and that's the reason why i mentioned pre-norman england because you don't really have the feudal, feudal system in the in the sort of classic sense um there okay so that that clarifies that to some extent but, but a related question to this mm-hmm. is um and i suppose the the answer you could argue is clearly a continuum Mm-hmm. But you mentioned it's a public enemy rather than the private enemy. Yes. Um, and Schmidt talks about war, mm-hmm. which then begs the question, well, when does violence amongst organized crime gangs become war? When is it just violence amongst? So when, when, when does sort of private war become, when does private conflict become war or public conflict? Oh, okay. Yeah, I would I would say that whenever that um, private war becomes public war 
whenever it poses a threat to the existence of an already existing state. I mean, think about it like so, this. Like, so, um, so, so would you consider then, I mean, you mentioned Hezbollah, but would you consider, say, a mafia family in a certain situation as being a state, given your definition? No. I was going to use oh, okay. the example of maybe what we see here in the American Southwest of the cartels. I think that's a much better example because that has gone from simply a case of like organized crime to where, you know, you have instances of the Mexican military having to retake entire towns, you know, that have fallen sway underneath um, the control of certain cartel gangs or factions, right? It's, I mean, in Mexico, I, I'm not sure if you, you folks are aware of this, but in Mexico in particular, there have arisen things, uh, groups rather, called like, I think they're called like the um, the self-defense organizations in certain states, Mexican states, where, you know, they're basically, you know, public militias that have been formed to kind of push back against cartel violence, right? I mean, anything that threatens to and anything that threatens the monopoly of an existing state, I think makes that distinction, or rather, that makes the, uh, anything that poses a threat to the ability of a state to hold a successful monopoly on the state of exception, I believe, poses a threat to that state's power. And I think you could also make that, I would, I mean, I, Schmidt doesn't talk about this, but I would also make the case that that's where we are right now, that the power of the, the of the, um, what do you call, of the traditional state, right, of like what many of us would call mere government, you know, the democratic or bureaucratic state has been weakened, you know, in the aftermath of like, let's say the advent of neoliberalism and the Bretton Woods uh, Accords to where essentially you have like these uh, multinational or international finance corporations or entities, you know, the World Economic Forum, the World Bank have essentially become like many states themselves of which, you know, governments, you know, national governments are essentially like the arms of the true decision-making body, which is, you know, these corporations like, you know, BlackRock and Vanguard and the rest. So you can make the argument that the West, right, the collective West is essentially a kind of corporate state, right, or a kind of world economic consortium of sorts. See, here's the thing is, the state doesn't necessarily need to have a flag. It doesn't necessarily need to, you know, be like a, a certain lines on a map, right? The state is only that entity which holds the monopoly on the ability to make a decision between friend and enemy, right? And if, let's just say like, um, you know, let's just say like these, these private or not private in the sense of like, they're privately owned, not like public, like not like the distinction between public and private that we were uh, going by earlier. But it's like, let's just say like these these corporations, right? If they, I don't know, like, well, here here's a real example, right? The Gulf War, you know, the Gulf War was a good example of like the first war 
in the modern era undertaken for like military economic expansionism. It didn't really serve like a true political purpose in the sense like it was about like um, it didn't really like serve the interests of the United States or its allies. Right. But it did serve the interests of maybe the um, maybe the people behind the scenes who who were able to manipulate the, um, the the political affairs of those nations for the sake of their own, you know, private political interests, right? I, I will cut in here. Um, the Nietzsche calls the state the coldest of cold monsters, and mm-hmm. so my question for you, the state, and particularly for Sch- Schmidt, is, and you mentioned Hoppe's world of a million Liechtenstein's. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and th- so one way to think of the state, yep. and I think the, the anarchist does this very much. So Marxists at times lean into it. Libertarians do the non-minarchists do definitely, um, is to view the state as a criminal gang. You were talking about Mexican gangs, um, you know, t- overtaking the state, uh, mm-hmm. in many areas, which is true. Keith Preston likes to talk about that as well. I'm sure you're familiar with Keith Preston. Um, the state seems to be a kind of, mm-hmm. it's, it's beyond good and evil in a sense. It's above the law. It's beyond the law. Um, um, when, so I, so I would say the classical liberal anarchist dream is to make the state, if the state has to exist, it has to exist according to the law. Now, Schmidt seems to think that's, from my reading of him, from what I've heard, and I think the realist case is that's basically impossible for a state to exist that way. Um, the Marxists have the same problem when they set up their states, because, you know, and you read this about Pareto and stuff is... The, all these syndicalist unions just basically eaten up by the uh, oligarchy of the leadership. Um, so you, the Marxists on the left had the same problem as, a, as sort of the classical liberal anarchists, like Hoppe. Um, so my question here is, and this is to Schmidt, um, and this could just be general pessimism. Um, if you critique the goodness of humans, it will say the human goodness claim is wrong. Okay, but then why would why would the state be any other why would the state be better in that sense it's more powerful i mean this is my pessimism like you know in the large extent i'm powerless i mean i have some control over my immediate affairs and this is where the localism idea uh kicks in and so forth but even that i mean i mean a lot of decisions like covid decisions all sorts of decisions are just made up on a high by elites far away i don't really have any say in them so my question to you is like you know, why not? Con- are you, if you're, if you're skeptical of the goodness of human, why would, why would the state? I mean, you might not be thinking in moralistic terms, which is fine. I don't think Schmidt is either. But like, what what is the project? What is the project there? Is it just purely understanding? I mean, I'm all for understanding the world too. I mean, I think Schmidt is very good at understanding the nature of that cold monster. But in terms of advocating take over it, that's where it becomes. You could still say I'm stuck in the libertarian. Malou. And I, and I I fully am into that in some sense, too. I think Swithin is somewhat, too. Um, um, but that would be my... It's not really a question directly, mm-hmm. but it's more of a comment with a question there. You know, if, if the state is this cold monster, okay. but but humans and the humans aren't that good either, why would why would the statist humans be any more useful in that in that sense to break out of this current existing uh, Malou you describe in uh, the sort of strange... Okay standing at a door. Lucas? Okay. 
because I think anything else would be denying the nature of reality, right? It's like when I, when I say like make the or when I make the claim that the state is the sole political subject, I am making a universal truth claim. I may not have to like it, like you said. It's not a question of morality. And here's the thing: is even Schmidt himself says that politics and ethics are two different spheres of thought and action. Politics is about friend and enemy. Ethics is about good and evil, right? You know, it. You know, the enemy, as he exists, may be good. He may be. He may have admirable or admirable qualities to him, but if he, you know, if he poses a threat to my power again if i was speaking as a state then he himself has to be declared an enemy right and i would say that i would even go back further schmidt does not make this claim but i would make this claim that um you know that the state is essentially an anthropological concept right the earliest formation i would say of the state itself begins with you know, the men's lodge, the warrior society, or what, you know, traditionalists back in the day would call the manor bund after Ebola, right? It goes that deep. It is part of our nature. Like, it is part of our, 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 our world, right? We can't escape the reality of the political is what I'm trying to say and what, what, what the purpose of this essay was. I understand, you know, if, you know, if I were... A libertarian or a, an anarchist and i thought the state was this cold monster and let me and to be fair it certainly is you know i mean the 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 reality of, of political life is is cold it is not pleasant i mean but any question that has to deal with friend and enemy are not going to be pleasant are not going to be pleasant questions that need answers right so um, I, I guess maybe your question to me was like, okay, if if this, if all of the stuff that goes into um, studying the state or um, or um, extrapolating on the state is just so uh, maybe demoralizing or, or pessimistic, why would we want to contribute to that? Well, it's like this. Okay, it's like what I said with you know Hoppe's uh, million little. Lichtensteins. Eventually, one of those microstates is going to gain an advantage over the others, and you're going to wind up with a situation where eventually one of those micronations has the monopoly of the decision. It's the same thing in nature, right? Eventually, in nature, in the natural world, there are always apex predators. Okay? It's the same thing with the political world, with the reality of the state i mean the whole idea of like well if i you know i guess i guess classical liberalism kind of assumes an optimism but i guess taking the 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 natural argument right let's say if i was a vegan if i was a vegan or i was one of these suffering abolitionist people who just hated the idea of death and violence and whatever but as much as i might hate death or slaughter or um you know or or, or uh, eating meat anything that had to do with you know taking a life right it doesn't change the fact that you know nature or reality doesn't care you know like 
the, the, the primordial history of this planet, you know, is dyed red in tooth and claw and the Precambrian rock. Just because I may not like the very violent reality of life on Earth doesn't do away with it. It's the same thing with the, with the political reality, right? It's that human political affairs are always defined by their activity in relationship to power. And power always implies that there will be friends and enemies. Just and, on that just on that point, uh, you were saying yes. how the Schmidt was saying that the, the ethical and the political are distinct. Mm-hmm. I can see I can see how he abstracts that. But in reality I, I, I think actually it's an abstraction too far because it's very much the case that now you may well agree with this so but i do think this undercuts sort of some of smith's rhetoric mm-hmm. is that insofar as you can maintain a monopoly on force and you are the states you need to get collaboration with people and those people need to believe that what you are doing is in certain respects uh, right or good uh, even if they're relativized terms and so uh, since the fact that that any organization of any size can't can't just be run by one individual uh, this is um oh oh yeah this is the uh, this is Etten uh, Labotwe's uh, point in discourses on servitude mm-hmm. that you know you have to have the acquiescence of everybody because you don't have this sort of god dictating everything in the center he needs intermediaries and people to do his will etc i can't see how that's anything other than bound up with sort of like the ethical and so, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you think that's okay. Yeah, fine. But I, 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 I do think that causes a bit of a tension in Schmidt's attempt to completely circumscribe the political as a, an entirely um, separate zone, um, because it has a necessary relation to it to even achieve its own existence. I would respectfully disagree because I think that all goes back to what we were discussing earlier with the, um, the nature of leader and led, right? You know, if we, let's just say we have this sovereign, you know, the sovereign who has the sole decision making, um, the power to make like these sole extra judiciary decisions, right? He's on top and below him, I guess, are his, uh, lieutenants or vassals thing, like whatever you want to call them, right? It's not, um, a matter of love that these people that his subordinates are kind of uh you know swearing allegiance to him it's because they understand that they are basically in a position where their power is less than his i mean we saw this i guess you know during the stalinist era of the soviet union i mean stalin was a megalomaniac he was a crazy person but people feared him i mean even after he died like even as he was laying in state people were afraid of him like he might rise from the dead and i'm not saying that stalin was like the picture perfect leader like that's not it i'm just saying like when you have like these these situations right when when they're about power there's always going to be that relationship between um subordinate and leader and it's I don't not think, sorry sorry i i think there's another i think i get this correct i'm pretty sure in the case of richard the mm-hmm. third that um 
even the who was it it was the leading woman of uh, his own house uh-huh. basically thought he had gone too far so much so that she courted who was then Henry the seventh to basically take over from him okay. because he, he he had just gone beyond anything that the king could reasonably be expected to do right um, those... so, so again so that that's my point is that you, even if you're not even if you don't you're not uh, describing this purely in a sort of like an ethics class, ethical sense. I mean, the individuals who have less power, I mean, they can just go, well, screw you. And um, we're not going to respect that. And so that then means that the eye on top doesn't have the power because in a sense, we have a, a very complex web of interdependence of, of, the, of the existence of the power of the guy on top to begin with. It seems very much like you've, the, the, this kind of distinction almost treats the, the sovereign as a god which now that might be an unfair characterization, but that's my that's my that's my issue with the way I, I, I'm conceiving of it. Okay, so in those situations, right, it's not a matter of ethics. It's a matter of again in those situations, like the ones you described, the only possible outcome then is either revolution, insurgency, coup, or civil war. And all of those still like look. What, what, what Schmidt says, like, when he's saying, like, the ethical realm and the political realm are different, he's saying, he's not necessarily saying, like, well, you know, like, the sovereign, that gives the sovereign, like, an excuse to kind of, like, act as, like, a, a, a pharaonic figure. What he's saying is that, it, you know, within the realm of friend and enemy and, you know, where, where, that distinction between friend and enemy, that 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 tension, is so, um, you know, that tension is so distinct that it devolves into a armed conflict and war. That's when you have situations like you know, dropping the atom bomb, for instance, that kind of are like these trans moral decisions. Like we can we can make an argument either way, whether. The dropping of the two atomic bombs in Japan was a moral or immoral decision, but essentially, um, like they're kind of extra moral in the sense that they were, they they went beyond the rule of law because they they happened in a state of war, where, I guess, where war you know war is the state where the rule of law is suspended, and Agamemnon no. talks about this as well. But in in the situation that you're talking about. That has to do with affairs within the state itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, no. But see, again, like, that's the problem. Is if these, if there is a breakdown in, in obedient, that, of that system of obedience within the state, again, the only option is revolution or civil war. And we saw that within, gosh, I, I mean, you guys are Englishmen, so please correct me with this. It was the English Civil War where... You had the, um, I think it was the royalists and the parliamentarians, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so at, at this, in a situation like that, you know, the state basically, right, splits into two. They're jockeying, you, you know, you had, I think it was Cromwell who was the leader of the, of the parliamentarians, was it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you had a situation where, you know, you had, you know, the king and the parliament 
were both vying for um, the ability to be that sole dis- decision-making body over what was called, you know, the uh, the Kingdom of England or you know the Kingdom of Great Britain, right? But that's the thing is there essentially are two Englands at that point, both fighting for the ability to make that decision for the oh, ability. No. Right. I, I, I understand it, but my, I, I suppose we're coming at two different angles. Um, okay. I mean, the, I, I'm sort of saying, okay, how do we account for the existence of the state to begin with? Whereas you're taking it essentially as primordial and it, it just exists. Yes. And I'm going, well, no. Um, I mean, the obvious one is to say, you know, power of father or something you developed from that. But even then, there's a, there's a sense of dad's gone too far but he doesn't have physical power, which is high enough. So I, I'm not saying, when I'm saying it, uh, the ethical thing, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. saying, I, I'm, I'm just explaining, the way I'm looking at it is, how do we explain people who are under uh, uh, the, the sovereign and how they behave and mm-hmm. whether or not there's certain situations would lead them to effectively act in such a way that the sovereign doesn't have the power that he otherwise did as i say i think the the nature of political power within a state mm-hmm. is very sort of very is a web of complex relationships okay so rather right. than being purely top down okay um now see that's the that was my main breaking point with a few other of my colleagues and again like at that point i think we're talking about two different things the state, which is the sole decision-making body, regardless of like whether it truly is like a government entity or not, and what we would assign the role of um, society to, right? No, so, just, to, 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 just, just to clarify, no, I, I, I literally mean in the fact that they can make the distinction between friend and enemy, even taking mm-hmm. the Schmittian position. Okay. I think the power to make that decision presuppose it insofar as they have significant power to make that decision that is based on an interrelated uh, web of relationships which allow that allows that power to exist which is not purely top down because i think okay. that can only make sense if you basically have a god king because i don't think you can actually exert your will on other people to do your bidding uh you may actually agree with this and it may be just a point of emphasis but i, I do think this has ramification for the Smithian position. Sure. I mean, well, here's the thing is, I feel like we're, we're kind of inching towards maybe justifying the existence of like dictatorship. And I mean, like dictatorship, I think is an aberration of democracy, you know, um, Oh, I, I'm not sorry. I, I, I'm not trying to say just dictatorship. I, I'm just literally saying, irrespective of what form the um, the decisive decision making entity takes, whatever that form is requires mm-hmm. um, le- basically uh, le- has to be considered legitimate amongst basically what you could refer to as a ruling class. Now, I'm not trying to use sure. it in a purely Marxist sense, but in the sense that these people are essential for the functioning of the friend-enemy distinction making sense, because without them, that the head of that body simply would not have the monopoly over violence and be able to command 
in the way that she does command. That's that's my point. Okay, okay. Um, I guess my counterpoint to that would be, um, and maybe this maybe this would be something that maybe you could agree with is that ruling class, which um, kind of gets the the green light from all of these maybe uh, other political groups underneath it might be the best of all alternatives, you know? I mean, we saw that like when I, when I, uh, when I was making that argument, right. In my essay about what, what would a state look like? It was about Somalia, you know, 90 Somalia where for lack of a better word, Somalia had no, it was a stateless society. It had no functioning government. Right. But in that situation, um, there was always going to be a power vacuum. And I make the argument that politics, the political world, abhors a vacuum. And again, we saw the rise of the Islamic Courts Union, which was this um, kind of like this alliance between the, the judicial or the legal and the religious spheres to essentially carve out a new political, um, what do you call it? a new political unit within the territory of what had been the Somali Democratic Republic. And, um, you know, all, all the Islamic court union had to do was persuade the Somalians both by force and by, I guess you could say, I, I hate this term, but like winning hearts and minds, you know, like it had to just kind of convince the rest of these, you know, the people living within this territory that it was a better option than the, the various warlords that also were carving out pockets for themselves, right? Because the state of, like, rather, the, the, the um, end result of statelessness is not anarchism or, a kind, or natural law. It's warlordism. You know, that's where I kind of make a break with all these maybe classical liberal or paleo-libertarian or anarchist thinkers, because I have never, I have never seen a situation and I think anyone would be hard pressed to find a, um, a situation where after you have a collapse of a, of a, of a, um, of a civilized society or a, a, or I should say a hierarchical society where after the collapse of that political unit, it just kind of reflexes into a, uh, a kind of voluntarist, um, you know, kind of, you know, economic cooperative thing of like where everyone is just kind of agreeing to like mutual covenants and private property. And it's like, I, I mean, I don't think you find that anywhere. I mean, the reality... So, Lucas, I, I would agree entirely with you with respect to Somalia and power vacuums and stuff. That's entirely my point. My point is we need to explain the con- the creation of, I think it's the Islamic Courts Union to begin with, and how that functioned. And the reason I say that is the idea that we have this, sep- this completely circumscribed area, which is political, and then ethical, on the other hand, I think doesn't explain human behavior. And we need to explain human behavior because we don't have one individual who can run a state of any size, even if you have one strong man, like literally the strongest warrior, like against five other guys or 10, he will lose. 
so we need to explain how um, the other he gets the other people to work alongside him, such that he is then in the position to make um, the friend enemy distinction. Um, that's uh, my point. My point. So to, just narrowly, it's I don't see the the wholly circumscribing of politics and ethics. Uh, as uh, I, I think that the, it's much more permeable. I can see there's distinctions to be made. That makes sense. But I, 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 I think the hermetic ceiling that uh, Schmidt attempts, I think, is contrary to reality. Okay. Um, I mean, again, I would respectfully disagree because it, it just strikes me as a little naive to assume that, you know, any, any decision that has to do with the possibility of violence is going to have, you know, naturally just assume like, you know, there are um, qualities of good and evil that go into that. I mean, obviously, you know, we can all agree, like, like here, what, what Schmidt is really getting at, it, it's not saying that individual human agents cannot act morally or ethically on their own. And I want to make that clear. This would be my, my response to that. What he is saying is that war, right, which is the highest intensity of the friend-enemy distinction, is also the, the um, doing away with, you know, the state of law, right? War or anarchy or revolution is basically like a void within the law, right? So it basically means like anything is possible, right? However horrific or inhuman, he's not making like, he's not saying that, um, again, like human beings cannot behave ethically or morally Due to, their, due to their own personal convictions as, you know, free or rational political agents within, you know, any, any hierarchy or system. But that, um, you know, this state, uh, you know, this activity in relationship to power naturally excludes, like, the ethical, right? The ethical decision-making um, I guess you could say the, 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 it excludes like the ethical in the sense of like, well, um, what, like, you know, if, if, if you and I were maybe going back and forth, like we are now, you know, deciding this, like this, this, you know, um, the, the questions or conversations about what is ethical in a state of war or a state of, or in a, or in a state where the possibility so, of so violence exists? Um, I, I think you're slightly. Maybe I've been unclear. Maybe I've been unclear. Okay. Um, well, my point, my, my point, merely is this. Uh, hopefully, what I'm trying to, what I'm saying is, insofar as the state exists, mm-hmm. we need cooperation amongst those people who constitute the state, irrespective of whether it's monarchy. It is dictatorship, whether it's uh, hereditary aristocracy, whether it's the current dispensation, whether we want to call that. Um, we need to explain cooperation among some people who constitute that ruling authority. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, no, so, no. And, and, and so we need to 
explain their co- their cooperation by the values of the actors involved. And right. that's why I'm saying, now this may not be Schmidt's point, but this is the way Schmidt comes across, is that he, he doesn't recognize, it doesn't seem to recognize that as necessary within state formation and the actual operation of the state, such that the sovereign can even exist. Mm-hmm. Is, is that clearer? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, there are going to be differing degrees of cooperation and um, between, you know, people who, who make up the state. Like, I don't think either myself or Schmidt would, would, um, would say that isn't the case. But again, I, and I feel like we're kind of going in circles. Like, I would say that it all comes down to you know, the relationship between leader and led. It's um, just these relationships of obedience and primacy. I mean, it's not excluding the possibility that these people can themselves have, you know, these rational free-thinking agents can themselves have a kind of internal moral compass that guides their decisions to make... um, you know, personal uh, decisions and how they conduct themselves politically. Excuse me, but what Schmidt is saying is the ethical, right? The ethical, as it pertains to a real possibility of violence, you know, is subservient to activity in relationship to power. And I think that's what Schmidt is getting at. It doesn't really... You know, I, I, I guess, you know, like, you know, these, these kinds of the internal organization of states is less of a concern for Schmidt as, you know, as opposed to its status as a real pol- or as its status of being like the only real political subject, right? Because if you want to, you know, break down any state, whether it be like, a democratic or bureaucratic or theocratic, any kind of state or government, you know, we're essentially talking about particulars and not essentials in that case. Okay. I, I, I think let's uh, shift gears for one final Let me, question. Can I cut in on a question here? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. What are your thoughts, uh, Lucas, on Thomas Hobbes and the necessity? We did an episode maybe a a year ago with Keith Preston on what is Thomas Hobbes right about the necessity of the state. And, you know, we're in that case, it was sort of a choir meeting because it was three anarchists of variety stripes discussing Thomas Hobbes in that sense. Um, but Thomas Hobbes, you know, it seems like Schmidtian is a kind of Hobbesian insofar as the, the, the state is a organization that prevents us from having Hobbes, of course, was writing the time of the very, the English civil war between the parliamentarists and the, um, monarchists and so forth. So he was writing in that very much that time frame here. Um, do you think, like, like, do you, what would you be your thoughts on like a world state? Like, because I think one of the things that Swithin was trying to get at is you have order and cooperation within effective states. Um, now the, the enemy of those states, states require, you know, the, you know, it's, it's the foreigner, the foreign friend distinction too, you could also say, like, it, those they're not cooperation there, but it's cooperation um, between there. And also, I think another figure that has to be brought up is Immanuel Kant. We did an episode on Immanuel Kant 
Immanuel Kant had this dream of perpetual peace. He's one of the landmark writers. You can love him. You can call him a spider. You can hate him. Um, he's significant. Um, and his idea of peace was that we'd have universal peace. Again, he sort of predates Marx in some ways. Some people would dispute that, but like the idea of universal brotherhood amongst nations, amongst... Now, he only find it to Christian people, so it's not Islam, um, but secularists have tried to push it here. Um, so my question here is, like, what would you advocate, like, a universal state? If states are necessary, um, um, why not have a kind of, like, wouldn't you need one one particular strong man with no enemies, period, here? I mean, I like, like, what would you make of that? I mean, another reason to be an anarchist, in a sense, today, and I think it's the first time we have the possibility of a world state, is, you know... You could say that, like, you get these, like, John Birch Society people who are critiquing, and it's interesting to read them 70 years later, it's like they were critiquing the UN and various other global organizations that were being set up as, you know, they were they were going to subsume the U.S. state, and they kind of did. Certain international organizations kind of do, you know, subsume them. Um, so what would you be your comments on, like, world state? Like, like that that's, that's a line that I've always thought, like, if you really believe you need... A strong man to create order. You need a strong man to create order amongst nations, which require abolish, ab abolishing the very nations um, that are currently existing here. What would you take to that line here? I mean, I, I can see that direction happen. Now, you could be cultural realists or other factors say, well, they can't get along or whatever. That very well might be true. But on a theoretical level, what do you make of that, Lucas? Okay, so uh, first off, just to address my thoughts on Thomas Hobbes, I I respect Hobbes as a serious thinker. Um, I, I I do I, I do think he was trying to get to the essence of the political in a very um, genuine way. However, I think his thought was, um, like you said, it was influenced by his own living, having lived through the English Civil War. And I think that made him, you know, much more of a pessimist than even perhaps either Schmidt or myself, you know, might be. And I, I think, you know, Hobbes's like idea of an all-seeing or all-powerful Leviathan is, you know, quite frankly unnecessary. I mean, also, I mean, he was writing at a time where it's like, I mean, the only other the only real form of government that Europeans had had, uh, you know, um, experience with was like absolute monarchy. So, I mean, his idea of just more of like a, a tyrannical monarchy, I feel like was just kind of not a cop out, but, you know, just kind of like this, I mean, it was ultimately unnecessary. And I feel like Hobbes was just thinking like, okay, well he was living through a time where public order, the rule of law, like we have been talking about, effectively ceased to exist. And he was running from a perspective, well, how do we, how do we keep, how do we, how do we ensure that this never happens again? And I think the Leviathan was a product of that way of thinking. Now, as for your question about like the world state, I've actually, I, I write about this in my, um, the essence of the political and I'm trying to find it because I feel like it sums up. Um, well, first of all, you know, a world state I don't think can ever exist. And Schmidt makes that pretty um, 
and, and Schmidt takes that same position. Well, I, so as a side, Schmidt says that a world state isn't a state because there yes. are no enemies. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because the political world is a pluriverse, not a multiverse, right? Or, or well, a universe rather. You know, the political world is a pluriverse, not a universe. States exist um, in conflict with one another. If we had a situation where there was only one, let's call it quote unquote, a world state, right? It wouldn't by definition be a state. It would be more like a kind of, uh, I'm trying to find that, that paragraph I wrote, but it would be more like a, a, a world, you know, air traffic control system or a world, you know, electric company, or in our case, more realistically, it would be a world economic consortium where entire national governments or states would themselves be subservient to these uh, transnational or multinational economic entities, right? It would be a corporatocracy in the most uh, brutal sense of a word. I think though, uh, uh, sorry, go to. Wouldn't you say though, Schmidt, like, the, wouldn't you say Schmidt points toward? Um, now again, you could you could say that he doesn't, but wouldn't you say sh- the logic of Schmidt points toward a kind of uh, maybe two competing uh, uh, blocks of, of 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 Leviathan, like in a bipolar um, system? Wouldn't you say that he at least points toward that direction? Because you do point out there's the state of the the exception here, and I do agree mm-hmm. that like you know I think Lenin has the quote that there are years there are de- decades that go by that nothing happens, and there are there are years that decades happen. I do agree, and that's most those those years that where everything happens are wars. They're state of exceptions. Um, I do I, I entirely agree with that. Like that that war in a sense, some senses, there's no it's kind of an outside ethical thing, but I I still think. I still think that the state has to, like, for one thing, it has to build itself up. Um, you know, you have to build the coalitions up. And throughout there, I would just simply say that, in a, a mild case, that the there is some, and I think Swithin was trying to get at that there, too. Um, but Swithin and I somewhat agree on things, so it's probably somewhat unfair in this, in this forum here. But, like, I do think there is some level of cooperation which isn't top-down. Um, that would be my mild... That would be my very mild case here. I don't know if Swithin would agree with that. I mean, I do agree that there is hierarchy and oligarchic control. Um, but I would say the best form of that would be a one-world state, um, if you really want to do it, if you really want to go all the way here. So that's why I think Thomas Hobbes um, is a very interesting political thinker here. And I do think Hobbes is more pessimistic than most thinkers, but but he is also probably one of the clearest thinkers um, there, because uh, he... He, you know, posits what he thinks is necessary to get uh, social order here. Which, if social order is a good, then you know you have to sit, sort of state that here. That'd be my response there. I mean, I, I would just say that Schmidt points towards that direction, for better or for worse. Right. I don't know. I mean, it's pro- you could probably link Schmidt and um, Hobbes within the same, I guess, you know, train of thought or you know, school of thought. Neither of them are anarchists. Would you agree with that? Right. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't say either of them are classical liberals either. Would you agree to that? Yes. 
Well, I don't know. Like I, I've heard the argument that Hobbes at least was thinking. I, I forgot who I heard this from, but I heard that Hobbes was essentially, you know, his idea of the Leviathan existed to, um, what do you call it? Defend, you know, civil liberties or, or personal liberties or something. But I, I forget who who made the argument for that. But it was a really interesting argument. But I would I would say they're not. Um, they neither of them are modern day liberals. No, absolutely. Not. <laughs> so, all right. But then again, most people aren't modern. Most historical authors and thinkers aren't modern day liberals anyway. So that's that's kind of that's kind of uh, just obvious there. Uh, uh, what what would be um. If if you could reincarnate Aristotle, because Aristotle haunts a lot of I, I'm I, I find Aristotle to be largely overrated. If you reincarnate him, what would be his thoughts on um, Carl Schmitt um, and the concept for the political? Because Aristotle is very much a Republican thinker, and again, a republic is not. I mean, I, you could say that if you get out of anarchist circles, like most anarchists think republics republics are unattainable. Um, um, so, so what would be your thoughts on like, uh, classical republicanism? We've had some interchanges with a YouTuber, both Swift and I, he's an advocate of that. Um, now you could say, of course, that's unattainable in the modern world. You very well might be correct about that, that, that claim might be correct. What would be your thoughts on, um, those ideas? I'm going to level with you. I've never been a big fan of Aristotle. I was more of, I'm still more of a Platonist. Um, me too. I would. Yeah. Well, I, I think Plato's more. Your orthodoxy comes out. Yeah. yeah. What'd you say? No, I said Lucas's orthodoxy is rearing his head. <laughs> yeah, You're, that's certainly true. But yeah, you know, I, I'm not. Uh, to be fair, I haven't really read a whole lot of Aristotle because I just, I kind of found him to be uninteresting and overly like pedantic. Oh, I would. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, that's. Um, there's a Protestant, well, not a Protestant. There's a uh, early church father who calls him wretched Aristotle. So uh, I like to. Uh... Oh, okay. <laughs> the classic Tertullian quote. <laughs> do you think the anarchist? Yeah. What, were, what were you saying? Oh no, go ahead. Do you think so? Do you think the anarchist project is unrealistic, or do you think yes. it's? Um, do you think it's it it, it is abs- what I guess because there's a cinnamon of themselves. Do you think it's unrealistic or do you think it's um out uh, is it's not in accordance with human natural nature? Like what would you what would you say to that question? Again, you could say those are both cinnamons of each other. Uh, I I mean no, I just think it's reality denying. Quite frankly, it's like like I said, it's like you know if I were like a radical vegan or a suffering abolitionist person, you know, like I, I, I have a friend of mine, Adam, who is a, a mutual colleague of a, of a writer known as David Pierce. And David Pierce is a, is a, a figure within a field called hedonics or suffering abolitionism, which is kind of like a, a kind of soft transhumanism, right? Basically their, their whole goal is to eliminate suffering from not just human life, but uh, like the planet, basically. And they go into like these weird 
you know, fantastical scenarios about how they want to eliminate all predator animals and use science to kind of, you know, make sure we have like, we're just high off of orgasms 24 hours a day. And it's just like really, it's, it's like fantastical nonsense. And yeah, it sounds good on paper, but you're essentially, you know, by, by criticizing like, quote unquote, the Darwinian reality that we just kind of can't escape from, it, it turns into something that, that just becomes like fantastical and, and reality, again, reality denying, as opposed to like saying, okay, well, how do we work within you know, how do we work within what already exists? How do we work within what has been proven to work? And I think getting back to the essentials of the political, right, you know, understanding as the Chinese are doing, right? I don't know if you folks are aware of this, but the people or the Communist Party of China has actually in recent years re- begun translating the works of Carl Schmitt in mass. He's really kind of energized their own kind of uh, intellectual base as China kind of, uh, you know, uses its friend enemy concept to kind of project its own power on the, on the world stage. So yeah, Schmidt has been, you know, has kind of seen a, a revival in recent years. And of course there's, you know, um, along with Benoit's good book, you know, Carl Schmidt today and how, um, I guess it was, you know, the Bush administration used, you know, the, the friend-enemy distinction to kind of launch his war in Iraq, or rather the state of the exception, my, my mistake, but the state of the exception to kind of launch the war in Iraq. And, um, yeah, I mean, I I really do think interest in Schmidt is necessary if we're going to try to understand, like, the reality of politics and not just kind of be... Uh, uh, led away into this thinking where everything just comes down to our participation uh, in society, right? Because society is basically an amalgamation of different spheres of thought and action. Like society is the amalgamation of, you know, government or law or religion or the economic trade unions, businesses, corporations, everything that falls outside of that ability to make that, uh, that final decision, not that, which is not to say that any one of those particular spheres or um, uh, uh, organizations could not themselves at one point assume that monopoly. But I'm just saying, like, in you know a regular state of affairs, they are typically outside it. But you know whether I don't know whether you have like a proletarian revolution that establishes a uh, 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 a socialist state or a, the church establishes a theocratic state or, you know, a, a courts union establishes a legal state or what have you, there's always going to be some entity that possesses, you know, the final decision on what groups of people constitute friend and enemy, right? And I think we need to take this idea seriously because our enemies do. I mean, you can't outlaw war, you can't outlaw violence, you can't outlaw oppression, but you can outlaw certain groups of people. And I think that those people that hate us and do not have their interest, our interests at heart understand this very well. And I think it would behoove us 
to kind of accept that and start thinking the same way. I uh, just know I thank Lucas for joining. It's been a very interesting discussion. If you'd like to check out more of uh, Lucas's stuff, go to uh, metanaissance.com and you see his writings and all the people writing for him. And um, thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, if you'd like to th- uh, contact the sh- if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean and on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com.